Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Hey, good to be with you again. It's baseball season this week. It is. It doesn't feel like it weather-wise, though. It's pretty chilly. Well, and it, I know everyone came on here to hear yeah. me talk about sports. Exactly. But the That's Giants, why they tune in. The Giants opening day starter is this guy named Madison Bumgarner, and last week during an exhibition game, he broke his hand, his pitching hand, on a comebacker. So he will be starting the season probably on the 60-day disabled list. I'm sure that makes you very sad. You could try being, like, empathetic. (laughs) That was very patronizing. (laughs) And I'm glad you got that. That's what it was intended to be. (laughs) All right, I'm going to move on from this conversation. Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Jim Wilhoyt. He is a professor of Christian formation and ministry at Wheaton College, and he focuses on Christian formation through spiritual practices and the role of the Bible. He's the author of many books, including Spiritual Formation, As If the Church Mattered, Growing in Christ Through Community. He's also a chaplain for his Presbyterian, which he's had the opportunity to give spiritual direction with many pastors. And as you'll see, based on our introduction, that's why we have him on the show. Hey, Jim. Hello. Glad to be here. Do you care at all that it's baseball season this week? Yeah, I did not know it was baseball season. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm the only, I'm the minority here when it comes to baseball. It's okay. I'll, I'll feel secure in that. Do you have a sport that you do like? Do I have a sport? Uh, I'm a runner, uh, but, you know, that doesn't sort of fit into national sports. So, you know, no, I grew up in a small town in Oregon with no TV reception until age 12. And, you know, without that sort of being socialized into sports, no professional sports teams at that point in the Pacific Northwest, you know, it just didn't get in. Uh, the bloodstream. I'd, I'd call that a childhood of childhood neglect. Child neglect. <laughs> Someone should have reported your family, your community. Yes, because somehow the, the majesty of Oregon, you know, was not sufficient. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to live. My father had a uh, one season as a AAA baseball player. But, you know, when you're with no place, no place to watch it or no place to go see it, it just doesn't really stick. That is pretty cool, though. All right. Well, I know people have had enough of me talking about baseball, and they can always go on Twitter and find me talking about baseball there, too. So we'll let them do that, and we'll get into the discussion at hand today. So last week, the Chicago Tribune reported on multiple allegations against Willow Creek Community Church founder and longtime pastor Bill Hybels. I'm going to just read an excerpt from their report. Quote, the alleged behavior included suggestive comments, extended hugs, an unwanted kiss, and invitations to hotel rooms. It also included an allegation of a prolonged consensual affair with a married woman who later said her claim about the affair was not true. So Hybels and his church have denied the allegations reported by the Chicago Tribune. Hybels is, of course, not the first megachurch pastor or even pastor to be embroiled in allegations of adultery and sexual misconduct. 
throughout the years. In fact, Christianity Today has reported on a number of high-profile ministers who lost their jobs after they confessed to sexual sin. Today on the podcast, we are not here to litigate Hybels, nor do we assume he is guilty of the allegations. This story is still developing. But stories like this do pop up all the time, as we've noted above, which makes us wonder if there are dynamics of pastoral life that uniquely tempt pastors into sexual sin. And that's what we'll discuss today. So before we get into that, though, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine, which right now is an issue completely devoted to Billy Graham. Yes, and one of the reasons I'm most proud of the issue, uh, morbidly proud, I suppose, is we have three contributors who have since passed away since they contributed to the magazine. That is to say, this magazine has been, this issue has been in planning since 2002, probably. And in that time, we asked people like Chuck Colson and John Stott and Richard John Newhouse to contribute their thoughts, and they were able to contribute them long before they passed away, but they are now in that issue. So uh, I think it's really interesting to get their reflections. Not only is it really interesting, it's awesome to just have his contemporaries reflecting on his life. Especially uh, Stott and Colson, since they were leaders of the evangelical movement. Uh, Richard John Newhouse is a Roman Catholic, so it's also really interesting to get his perspective on it. I was just thinking, though, about like what really has to be possible for those types of interviews, I mean, or contributions. Yeah, I think you did, there was an interview that you did like, with Colson, for instance. And you really have to have some sort of institution that's that invested in someone's life that they're going to make sure that they track down these people before they die. So yeah, Billy Graham was really lucky that he decided to, you know, start a magazine. There you go. <laughs> so but we've you... done that for other people as well. So we had to do that when we heard Bill Bright was dying back in the day. And we had to contact close associates of his to interview them and or to get them to write something for us. It's a, one of the more awkward parts of journalism, but... People really appreciate it when you honor someone well like that. Absolutely. All right. If you would like a copy of that publication and to become a subscriber of Christianity Today, it's the same link. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And yes, if you subscribe now, you will get this commemorative issue for Billy Graham. All right. As you know, Mark, now is the time of show called the gut checks. And so I'm just... I just want to know, what was your first reaction when you heard this news about Bill Hybels? I'm sorry to say it probably wasn't a surprise in this respect. I've been uh, observing Christian. I've been in ministry myself. I was in a Presbyterian church, by the way, uh, Jim. So I was part of Presbytery dealing with various and sundry. I was on the committee of ministry that was dealing with some of these problems that pastors were having. So it does. Uh, and this is a really sad state of my. I suppose it says something about me that I'm not surprised when I hear that this has happened to a pastor, or that a pastor has done this, or potentially done this. I, I, let me make it absolutely clear: I'm not assuming Bill Hybels is guilty. But when I hear stories about this, I'm sorry to say I'm not surprised anymore. And that's probably a more an indictment of my heart than anything else. Well, I don't know if it is. I mean, I think you and I have had conversations before about cynicism and journalism and trying to be not fooled by who people are. Well, at the same time, you know, especially at this ministry, there is an emphasis on having hope and believing in the church at the end of the day, too. Right. So it, it can be challenging to wear both of those caps at the same time. I personally, this is, you know, the story comes out. The story that the Tribune reported gives a lot more information than the excerpt that I read here. And I've read a number of stories that I guess would kind of like fall into this genre of potentially like Me Too stories over the past couple months. And I was talking about what talking about the story with one of my friends yesterday. And I was like, 
I was almost surprised it wasn't more awful because I've read some really horrible stories, again, in this type of space over the past couple months um, where, you know, you've seen people really just like traumatize someone, which is not at all to just say that like anything that Hybels is alleged to have done would be somehow excusable, but only to point out that we've really been reckoning with seeing people who are in positions of power, um, seeing a lot of their misdeeds exposed and reported on. And that I guess that that's been a lens that kind of like changed how I was yeah, reacting to this. There's a whole range. Yeah, I think it's fair to say there's a whole when we're talking about sexual misconduct. There's an, a huge range of what that includes. So, and we 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 need to be cognizant of that and recognize it for what it is. Yeah. All right. So, Jim, I'm just curious, what is often your first reaction when you hear allegations that a well-known pastor has been confused of or has confessed to sexual sin? Right. I guess certainly one has certainly a different reaction depending upon the degree to which one can sort of believe the report. But so assuming that you have reason to believe that that's actually the case, you know, I guess at the point, since often if it's just in the news media, that's not something where I need to make any kind of professional judgment about. It's a it's a sense of empathy. Uh, it's a sense of uh, you know real real concern, uh, real heartache for uh, the family and and the church. Um, I, I've seen I've seen the effects. I've, I've seen I've seen the effects in families and in churches. I think of a church now. Where um, you know, occasionally we'll have contact with people, and, and realize you know, 15 years out, people who are actively involved have become kind of Christian and Easter Christians. They just don't want to be hurt and betrayed again. So, an empathetic response uh, that's pretty wide ranging. In your experience, do you know if pastors end up committing sexual sins more than? members of their congregation or the general public at large? Now, you know, I don't have I mean, the sorts of numbers that are given on that sort of broad survey. I think it's hard to, uh, you know, hard to understand. I, I would, I think it's um, uh, less. I'm, I'm, I would be overall, you know, this is something that I think is still marked as an anomaly. It's something that we still find to some degree uh, shocking. I certainly, uh, you know, would find as I deal with uh, the pastors that I deal with are uh, very sincere, are faithful. Their areas of struggle, but it's certainly not something that is something that I would say is uh, it's a reality. But I would not say it's kind of a mark of pastoral life. Long hours is a mark of pastoral life. There are other things that are mark of pastoral life. This is. Uh, an unfortunate um, occurrence, uh, but I would not say it, it marks pastoral life. I think that's a uh, something very important to say at the top, because uh, well, Leadership Journal, when we did publish that particular journal, did a survey back in the day. So this was some years ago, but I believe it was somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 percent of pastors said they had done something sexually inappropriate. It could be anything from a conversation on the phone and inappropriate conversation to full-fledged adultery. And that doesn't strike me as uh, extraordinarily high. Uh, it's extra- it's extraordinarily high given the, the profession 
like you're saying, we have higher expectations of our pastors, but as human beings, it doesn't strike me as extraordinarily high. And we should keep that in mind that one of the reasons uh, we tend to think of it as more of a problem in the pastor is because these are, they're public figures who do get public attention. Uh, right. Whereas uh, Joe Smith, businessman in the congregation, has an affair. Nobody hears about it except his family and a few other people. There's multiple allegations that are being made here, and we'll kind of get into both of them because some of them have to do with unwanted sexual advances and or sexual harassment. And then there's also these allegations of an affair. And that's kind of what I want to talk about first. So we know that people cheat on their spouses for all different types of reasons. What do we know about the circumstances that uniquely tempt pastors into having an affair? One of the things I would say is that um, I think without exception, that as I have talked with people, pastors who have committed adultery, is that, uh, and often this is sort of initially when there's a shock and there's still some level of defensiveness, all of them have excused or framed the circumstances by citing, they wouldn't use this language, but citing some sense of deprivation. You know, their, their family didn't understand them, the church didn't understand them, they're working long hours. They somehow saw themselves as being deprived, and that that allowed for this. So I'm not reading that into uh, the case you mentioned from Willow Creek, but I would certainly say in terms of pastors in general, you know, it's easy to end up uh, seeing yourself as deprived, long hours, low pay, lack of appreciation. And I think uh, that sense of deprivation can be used as a excuse card. Uh, for this kind of behavior. It's convincing precisely because so many of the things are actually true to a pastor's life. I was a pastor for 10 years, and one of the things that surprises people is how lonely pastors feel. Right. Uh, they're with people all the time, they're counseling, they're in meetings, they're before a congregation, but it's a very lonely, it's a very lonely job because there's not many people you can actually talk about what's going on with you and sometimes you find yourself in a vulnerable situation where you start sharing some of those things that are going on with you, and it creates all sorts of psychological and sexual dynamics that you weren't expecting, but there there you go. So that is part of the reality of the modern pastorate. And one of the things that would be said with a pastorate, all the cases that I'm familiar with, this sexual sin uh, was done in secrecy. You know, we've heard in part of the Me Too movement, we've heard about movie sets or political offices where things were out of control and that they're blowing a whistle on a kind of culture. Uh, but all the cases that I knew were the pastor, this is something that's hidden. This is something that's done in secret. I, and that sense of loneliness is something uh, that goes hand in hand and also allows for it because uh, you don't have someone who's asking, uh, asking questions. Now, the other thing we haven't mentioned here that relates to the Me Too movement is that we have to uh, acknowledge, especially when you're talking about a past, pastors who we were dealing with in the presbytery I was involved with, who were serial adulterers, being passed from one presbytery to the next without without telling uh, the, 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 the new presbytery that this person had this past, is they there are pastors that do, in fact, for whatever reason, they start exploiting women in their congregation to gain sexual favors from them, and they do use their power. So there is 
it's not just that the pastor is victim to an emotional uh, tsunami going on inside. That is true of many, many pastors, probably most, uh, if I were to make a guess. But there, let's be fair, there are also pastors out there who use their position to exploit women in this way, and that's, that's really despicable. Right. This is not something I've sort of looked at empirically, but in terms of the, the, sort of, uh, limit, the limited data set I would have, I've certainly been familiar with those pastors where there has been a serial adulteries or uh, use of prostitutes or other things that went on for some time. And at some level, their uh, spouse or wife, in this case, was somewhat complicit in covering this up. So uh, that's a that's a very small number, but I've certainly seen that. Uh, you also find those that are, you know, pastors of a large church or pastors of a large, leaders of a large ministry, where there are issues of the uh, appeal, the status, the power. Remember Dallas Willard saying that power uh, is a powerful aphrodisiac. And uh, so I think um, the kind of Elmer Gantry type person, that's in a separate category. I think most of the, the pastors that I'm dealing with, there are multiple issues that have brought this about. So I think we can, I really want to exclude the kind of people that are really um, sort of stars, rock stars, and there are lots of things that come into play with that. And then those people that are really have been preying on the congregation. I think those are, for terms of the group I work with, those are really outliers. Well, I'm glad that you guys have still decided to identify spiritual abuse as its own category, because <laughs> that definitely yeah. seems like that is yeah. something that we, we have seen that come into play. And certainly, right. you know, oftentimes it's, not oftentimes, it's very hard to divorce sex and power from one another. And so even if these women may enter into what we believe are consensual affairs, and again, most of the time it's women, even though I know that we could also name times where there have been men involved. Um the, just the, the inherent parent, uh, power dynamic has its own thing. And along with that, just I'll just mention, and I think that's one of the things, you know, we, the so-called Billy Graham rule. Um, and, and I think that um, if you've been around places, if you've been involved in dramatic ministry involvements where the gospel has been preached and people responded or the spirit has worked in power, there, there can be sort of remarkable confusions between the power and uh, a person can begin to confuse that power uh, with a, a sexuality. You know, I think we also have to say those are exceptional times, uh, but uh, the, the kind of moat that Graham put up that I don't think is always necessary was probably very wise in that incredible place of spiritual energy that was occurring, uh, particularly during those early uh, crusades. It's very easy to uh, end up having that become sexualized. Yeah, I would just, as a historical note, that was one of the concerns of the, certainly the Second Great Awakening. Uh, during these spiritual revivals, there was not only people getting saved, but there are people running off together in the woods, uh, <laughs> the the spiritual spiritual and sexual dynamics are vi- actually very close from uh, you would know this Jim more than I would but in terms of a person's spiritual formation and the experiences they have and the feelings they have those two sets of emotions are very close sometimes 
Oh, I, yeah, I can remember a, a person who had worked uh, during so the late 60s, a charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church, and was amazed that with renewal uh, came sexual falls. And part of it was people were coming, waking up to their feelings and, and receiving some healing. Uh, and there was, uh, they had experienced together, men and women experienced together dramatic things, which drew them. Uh, in a kind of intimacy, and many of them uh, just did not have uh, the boundaries in place to deal with this. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I forget which one of you brought up this idea of the modern pastorate, but I'd actually like to get into that a little bit and just talk about to what extent the pastorate has evolved into a place that kind of fosters this deprivation that you mentioned earlier, Jim. How is this job kind of professionalized in many ways to to structurally enable a pastor to feel so alone? Yeah, it's certainly something that, you know, time and again, surveys are going to report on pastors having uh, this sense of isolation, a sense of needing to, they don't have true friends within their church. And, you know, particularly, it depends on where they live in the community. You know, they may be uh, without uh, peers in the community that they can uh, I get in touch with, you know, certainly, you know, that is one of the factors in the modern pastorate. I mean, uh, you know, I think I look back at my small town that I grew up in in Oregon, and I know there was more contact across um, denominations. I suspect now we have a, a more divided country. We'd be less eager for Methodists and the Baptists, the Presbyterian, uh, to talk in some ways. So I think that uh, leads to that isolation. I think the, the job has expanded. Uh, people, uh, pastors are expected to uh, be managers, uh, you know, as well. And, you know, that puts on a, uh, a, whole, uh, a whole sense of, of burden. I, I've certainly, with that, talked with uh, several pastors uh, where serious boundary crossing came uh, when there was somewhat a loss of vision, you know, they had been involved in a building program, had worked hard on raising the money, had gotten the Christian school built, had done these things, and realized they were a bit uh, without direction. 
for a number of reasons, that was a time uh, that they found themselves open to temptation, uh, open to some sense, well, partly deprivation. I gave so much to the church, what have I gotten out of it? And knowing how to uh, how to provide accountability by the, the church staff is very difficult. Yeah, so I want to talk about accountability then, because we mentioned Billy Graham earlier and the Billy Graham rule, which was part of this thing called the Modesto Manifesto, where he set out these commitments to kind of really make transparent how he was going to pursue integrity and the ways that he was going to maybe draw some like very big lines in front of things that he wouldn't do, which again, many of us may not feel like those things were like the problem there, but he was concerned about the things that were a couple steps away from that. Obviously, I think he is the most recognizable example of people deciding to do things, to take these stands to preserve um, his integrity. But what efforts have you seen pastors themselves take to to keep from, um, you know, having an affair enter? And what type of, what, which of their efforts do you see are as, see as effective? I think there certainly are those sort of prudential rules and w- which, you know, can end up having a father, two daughters. I know that some of those rules would end up uh, removing uh, the pastor from some kinds of mentoring relationships that I would hope uh, would be ama- uh, made available to uh, young women. So I see those prudential rules as something uh, that's important. And, you know, certainly as one, uh, it isn't so much that people have made decisions to have an affair, but that they have had a series of boundary crossings over time uh, that have, you know, made this seem, um, that made it seem possible. So I I think those prudential rules are good. I I hate to be a bit of a curmudgeon, but it really... (laughs) It really ends up no one that I've talked with who has had an affair has had what I would say at that time, a vital and well-developed relationship with Christ. You know, it is. I'm just not very sanguine about the spiritual life of many American pastors. And uh, I would Yikes. say, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's, Sorry. you know, there's, there's reasons in modernity for that. As you mentioned, you, you, pastors are called upon to play many, many more roles nowadays. One of them is, uh, is that of a leader that, which is in many ways conflicts with his role as a minister or pastor. There's a two different, and there is his managerial role. He's got to be a fundraiser. He's got to be a building builder. He's got to be a visionary. And all these things works against him being the spiritual direct, in a sense, the spiritual director of the congregation. So that, you know, I can speak from experience here, uh, you can begin to excuse your, your prayer life and your devotional life because, well, I'm spending all this time exegeting Scripture to get ready for the sermon. And I'm spending all this time in Romans because I'm teaching a class on Paul. And by the, but besides, I've got to get to this Building and Grounds Committee meeting. And so... It, uh, for for Morgan, it's a surprise to hear that pastors don't have a deep spiritual life. As a former pastor and having friends with other pastors, it's like, well, duh, it's really hard to have a spiritual life it's as a pastor. It's sad, though. It's sad. <laughs> oh, no, it is sad. It, it, it is. And so I would say, I mean, I appreciate elders who would say, what can we do? And they would think about accountability groups and other things, and that, that's good. My, my first answer would be free up the pastor from some of these things that he or she is probably not as good at, and probably you do in your day jobs, 
uh, so that they can maintain a vital spiritual life. Do all you can to safeguard that. As Paul says, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ and do not think about how to satisfy the desires of the flesh. Clothe yourself. Well, and to go back to some of the safeguards that we talked about, I think that could also be sometimes why these safeguards may rub us the wrong way is that they are framed, obviously, in terms of like how to keep someone from having an affair rather than how to help, you know, how to help your pastor have a thriving marriage, how to help your pastor have a thriving social life, how to help your pastor be a great parent to their children. And obviously, there are people who seem to have those healthy things and they still do deviant actions. But many of us, if those relationships are in the right place, in the right order, and we're getting fed by them, and in addition, having this walk with God that is active and consistent, that type of behavior is far less likely to come rather than trying to single out particular behaviors that you're going to avoid. <laughs> As you know, like because that doesn't even make someone necessarily healthy. I think, like, I mean, we're trying to think about how to build like an emotionally healthy ministry leader at the end of the day. Absolutely, and I and I would say emotionally healthy with, with some level of, um, and that would come with emotional health, but some level of of self awareness and you know some someone who's going to be at the end of a spiritual nine one one call, so that you can call and say. It is not, you know, it is not going, uh, it's not going well. And that's, uh, that's crucial to be able to have. I think one thing that helps is when a congregation can become more aware of what their implicit expectations of the pastor are. So I learned in the pastorate, for example, yeah, if you're going to preach a good sermon, you're going to have to dedicate anywhere from eight to 12 hours minimum to crafting that. But if a parishioner calls you and says, can we meet at 10? And you say, uh, well, I can't. That's when I'm preparing for my sermon. A lot of them will say, well, you can put that off and meet me then. Uh, <laughs> if you say something like, I already have an engagement, or I already have a meeting, they don't blink and they say, fine, what, what's another time? And the same thing could be said of one prayer. You know, if a pastor was to say, I can't meet then because that's that's when I, I pray for two hours before lunch every day. Most most parishioners would say, what do we think? What do you think we're paying you for? <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, that's a lot of time in the week to spend in prayer when actually maybe now, obviously, this sort of thing could be abused very easily by by men and women who are in pastoral leadership. But just the illustration suggests that even our priorities as congregations sometimes creates problems for the pastor. Oh, I think that's well said. Very well said. I just want to also want to talk about these unwanted sexual advances and sexual harassment, um, which, again, were amongst some of these allegations made against Bill Hybels. You know, we've we've read a lot of these Me Too stories and accounts um, of stuff that's gone on in workplace. And many people have, have argued that the men that are committing these actions, it, it, it's kind of a way that they are throwing their power around and that potentially it's less of something that is carnal or sexual in many ways and about just kind of reasserting authority. Would you say that the same dynamics are at work here when pastors have committed, you know, again, unwanted sexual advancements and sexual harassment? You know, it's hard to uh, to understand all the uh, all the dynamics uh, that are involved. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a few uh, cases of where I saw, you know, sort of serial uh, adulteries that were going on, and. You know, it's certainly, uh, certainly talking to there, there was certainly a, 
a yearning for intimacy. But there, there was, I remember one person using the language of uh, being validated, just not feeling validated in any other area. But this was an area where the analogy was used of going in, he'd go into a, this hospital parking lot and would have to get his ticket stamped at the door, you know, that he was uh, on a pastoral visit. And he said, when I'd have these encounters, I had a sense that sort of my identity was was validated. So, you know, I'd say it's uh, it's certainly uh, very complex. Like, again, I'd want to separate. Uh, I think what is occurring uh, with pastors that are on a large stage and where people, they're traveling with an entourage, I think is very different than what is happening to the pastor of a small church who is discouraged, feels like uh, he is just wrung out, and finds in a counseling session someone who is deeply affirming of his wisdom in ministry. Uh, and things click. Uh, that's And that's what I spend most of my time with are people where there has been some sense of validation uh, of them as a person that they are not getting elsewhere. I think what happens for people who are on the stage with uh, people clamoring around them is a different phenomenon. You know, oftentimes there are rumors that go around before we start to get actual facts and reporting about what's going on. So I'm just wondering, Jim, how does this happen in the life of the church once rumors make their way to some of the folks that are on the elder board and or ministry staff? Right. I mean, that, that is, uh, boy, that's a hard one. And I'll, I'll turn to you for the Solomonic wisdom. I mean, the one thing I would say is that one needs to be very careful and realize that what my, what people are learning in their workplaces about corporate governance and about control of information just does not work in the church. One has to be careful. One has to be prudent. But the the sort of corporate response of kind of tight lipped, you've got to talk to HR, just does not work in uh, the living and dynamic uh, body of Christ. So that's you just have to be really careful to make sure that sort of corporate policies are not, you don't try to just bring them in. But at the same time, um, one wants to be respectful and one wants to realize uh, where uh, rumor can go. I think to the extent that it goes out and it's sort of in the congregation, uh, letting people know in a way, not through email, uh, but letting people know uh, maybe a Sunday announcement the appropriate way uh, that this is being looked at. Let people know about the process. Let people know about the independence of this process. Let people know about the thoroughness of the process. Let people know how they can uh, submit information to this process. Uh, And it's really vital. I mean, uh, one of the things, it's a gift. Assuming that the elders believe there's probably nothing to this, it is such a gift to a pastor to do a thorough review so that uh, people uh, in the church sort of buy it. Doing a, a sort of quick review, assuming, oh, we had some women on the group as well, but who were all uh, connected with the pastor. You know, that just is not a disservice to a pastor. Give them a review that's credible. 
Yeah, I'd say that some of the incidences that I think back on that we were dealing with in my committee on ministry, this one in pastors in particular, history had been, part of that history had been this kind of congregational awareness of, of what was going on. I mean, it does, it just puts everyone on the alert in, in that regard. It is hard to know. I mean, it's a judgment call. When do you bring the congregation in? When do you, you know, it's not an easy thing. But uh, when it's possible to do it publicly like that in an open forum, wow, it's so much more healthy for a church. Yeah, and I'm glad that you stressed that regardless of whether the elder board finds that or believes that this pastor is going to be innocent or not, it is still a very helpful exercise to nevertheless go through, even if that those charges and ultimately end up clearing the pastor. Right. And if you're in a denomination, there are probably going to be some resources. You may have some people in the community uh, that uh, that you can use. But you you want to have a clear process. You want it to be something that's thorough. Uh, you want something that's going to be you know sort of have face validity. People look at it and say you know that looks like it, it was done well enough. It can't just be passive. Uh, there needs to be often uh, some level of investigation. Would you say that that investigation almost always needs to be independent? And would you discourage churches from doing their own investigation? You know, it's going to depend on uh, on what it is. I mean, if you find something that seems to be a, uh, so a youth pastor has crossed the boundaries with a member of uh, the youth group, and, you know, this is something that you may find people in the church, some counselors who are willing to talk uh, with youth group members and their parents to ascertain if there are others. You know, that I, I think one needs to be really prudent here and to realize there's a lot that we can learn from our sort of corporate life, but we're coming to the church. We are dealing with something that is analogous in the best way uh, to a family. You know, we want to, and we know we're, we've all been helped as families by outside influence at times, outside input. Uh, but many small churches, uh, particularly rural churches, don't have resources, human resources or financial resources to sort of bring in outside people. So we're a denomination, groups like a, a committee on ministry can be of uh, a very uh, big help. As we wrap up this discussion, I'm wondering, you know, you, you've worked in this space for a number of years. I'm wondering if you could just tell us, like, what are the common blind spots that you see for pastors as they kind of think about themselves and their capabilities when it comes to ministries? And then the second part is, what are the blind spots for churches also when it comes to these issues? You know, one thing, I remember talking to uh, one man, and he was mentioning uh, with a in recovery, coming to some awareness of his own body and sensations. And he would have said, I think probably said somewhere between sort of mid-adolescence and early 30s, he said, any feeling I received sort of my neck to my knees, I thought was um, that I was hungry, you know, and I'd go eat something. I I mentioned there's got to be some uh, level in pastors of an awareness of their embodied feelings it goes beyond it goes beyond that you know i am uh, aware i think pastors need to just be alert by the media it is so easy uh to end up sexualizing uh, a feeling and you you have you have someone who's vulnerable 
uh, you uh, a woman, you you show care, she responds. I think you need to be aware to say, oh, that feeling of respect and that sense of affirmation for my listening, I'm sexualizing that. I'm saying she's seeing me as attractive. And I need to re- sit back and say, no, I think she's showing me respect. I, I would just say to people, just begin to uh, become more uh, more self-aware. You know, I would also, this is going to sound very negative, but I, I would say, uh, you know, pornography is out there. I mean, I would just say to a pastor, if you're involved in pornography and alcohol is part of your life and you're lonely and you have a sense of deprivation in ministry, watch out. You are set up to cross boundaries. Uh, and those, those four together, if those are in your life, it is not going to bode well. You know, keep a connection with Christ. Have a practice of uh, a prayer. Seek out some people. Um, you, know, you may uh, find that uh, through enroll in a D-Men class if you have to. Do whatever to find some uh, connections uh, with some people that will uh, that will help not only give you accountability, but just give you a place to listen. I think particularly to help talk you down from probably the overblown shoulds and oughts that uh, that rule your life and have led you with a sense of being self-critical and uh, a sense that uh, this is an unduly hard life. Yeah, I, I would say for for a church that wants to have their pastor flourish, you know, I would say certainly encourage and ask and audit about the kinds of you know rules and boundary keeping that you have, but do all that you can. End up having a committee or a resource that is not just sort of you know looking for boundary violations, but looking to see what can we do to help this person's marriage flourish? What can we do to help this person uh, have a sense of success? What can we do to uh, not have a development plan that says, you know, here are these areas where you are not doing so well? That may be necessary. What can we do to restructure this job to help fit this person that we prayed and believed God brought to us? Awesome. Thank you so much for this food for thought. I really appreciate it, Jim. For anyone who has feedback, wants to identify our blind spots, you know, you can go to Twitter and you can let us know there. We're at CT Podcasts. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy. Mark, you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready for what I'm about to say? No, I'm obviously not. It's not about the thing you always roll your eyes at when I talk about it, or no. the things. All right. Something brand new on my no agenda. No one even knows that I roll my eyes. A hobby that I'm resurrecting. I spent the last many back-breaking hours carving out about a 200-square-foot area on the side of our house so I can plant a vegetable garden this year. That's awesome. So, What are you going to plant? All sorts of things. You know, lettuce, tomatoes carrots, whatever, whatever I get. I haven't quite decided that yet, but just the idea of nurturing something to grow and to consume it. Has this been part of the galley household in the past? To some degree. My wife's a gardener, but she's more into flowers, although she has had her series of squash and tomato plants. But I've done it on and off for, well, mostly off for the last couple decades, but earlier in my life I did it. 
Enjoyed it a lot. Thought, I got to make time for this. All right. So just a warning to our listeners. Mark will now be giving us updates. Updates on how the tomato plants are doing. Yeah. Well, here in Illinois, it's still way early to plant. So it's one of the disadvantages. We used to live in California when we could start planting even before this. All right. So where can people find you? I composed something called The Galley Report. You can find it at christianitytoday.com slash The Galley Report. G-A-L-L-I is the way you spell it. I offer links and commentary and articles. All right, Jim? Yeah, so similar to Mark, it's the beginning of gardening season. Uh, nothing edible, uh, but I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in my backyard. I have my avowed plan of seeking to create Oregon in uh, Illinois. So our backyard has no grass, high canopy of trees. And so I've been out working in the garden. In Wheaton, Illinois, no less. Is that right? Naperville, Illinois. Okay. Will will roses be a part of that garden? Uh, In the the back, it's all shade and uh, it's all green. And uh, the only thing that is allowed back there uh, that uh, blossoms has to be white. Ah, there you go. Wow, that sounds lovely. Roses are white my garden. are my favorite. But my wife keeps reminding me we can't grow them here. Yeah, it's hard to grow those the West Coast sort of tea roses. You can grow sort of more native uh, roses. But... Yeah. Do you have a website? Are you on social media? I am not on social media. I think it's a good place to avoid. Uh, and um, <laughs> so. I am, uh, you can find me uh, at jimwilhoyt.com. Not a lot to find there, but you can find it. All right. Noted then. Um, all right. My precious moment is something that hasn't happened yet. I'm going tonight to this thing that's having like global affairs trivia. I'm really excited. Most of the time I don't really care. Like who cares about trivia that's pop culture? I don't care about trivia that's pop culture, but I'm going with a friend who's a human rights attorney, and she does, like, international human rights. And so I was like, I think we would be a really good team. <laughs> I'm okay. excited to see if that is actually going to bear out. I tried to do this, like, Capitals of the World contest with my friend a couple months ago, and he completely destroyed me. So I don't know. It may not go as well as expected. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. I'm excited, nonetheless. How can we reach you? Sounds good. How can we reach me? Um, people, I am on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone who listened to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts and on Google Play and almost wherever you get all your podcasts. We ask you, though, if you would love the podcast, to give us five stars and to go onto Apple Podcasts and tell us about your love for the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has done so. Again, you can get a copy of the Billy Graham issue and a subscription to Christianity Today magazine by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred, and we will see you all next week. Bye.